today i feel pretty good i am confused because it's just a weird you know it's that taint as sandra said it's oh my god (laughs) (laughs) i didn't catch that did you not catch that no i didn't catch. oh i posted i i I know what you posted well something about how i'll just to say it for everyone um how the that week that bit of time between christmas and new year where you don't know what day it is or what you're doing or who or you know where you're supposed to be or who you are and then sandra said something like it's called she had a friend that called it or an ex-boyfriend somebody called it the taint um and i thought that was really funny because it kind of is the taint um, yeah. I don't know if the taint is a good thing so, or a bad thing, check, but check body part, <laughs> check. Yeah, inappropriate <laughs> body talk, check. <laughs> I didn't mean to plan it that way. It just happened because she no, said it's it. Just what happens? Yeah. she said it. She did it, not me. I was planning on talking, you know, cleanly. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna be. Cute. There's a reason people feel like they can just say taint on your. <laughs> yeah, I know on your feed, right? I don't. Is there something wrong with the taint? No. It's, okay. It's not particularly yummy to think about. I don't um, know if it's a good thing or it's a bad thing. I mean, like I don't think it's either. I think it's a thing that exists between two parts of your body, and I just think <laughs> it probably smells. <laughs> well, it probably does, but those parts smell. Anyway, um, I've never thought of it as a bad thing. I mean, it's I could go in. It's a terrible stuff. word. That's it's what a it terrible is. word, it's- but it's not a terrible body part. There's, I mean, you know, <laughs> if you know what you're doing down there, you can make use of it. So this episode, sorry, Isabel. <laughs> wow. Sorry, Isabel. Um, so I feel good. <laughs> I'm, I, feel, I feel weird. I can't even remember why now. I feel weird because it's um, that time in between, yeah, Christmas and New Year's. I'm going on a plane in a few hours. It's really dark and windy and rainy here. Um, I don't know. I've been watching Mad Men for like 12 hours. Uh, Yeah. If I lived in the Pacific Northwest, not the Pacific Northwest, where do you live? New England. If I lived in New England, I would never do anything during the winter. I would be like, oh, it's snowing outside. I don't know if anybody gets anything done there. I'd be like, it's time to stay in and put PJs on. Because that's what I do when it rains. For six months. I'm always excited. What's that? <laughs> for six months. Yeah. No, I wouldn't. I would I would be not productive for six months out of the year. Anyway, I'm just saying. I know. I'm proud of you. Thanks. Um, cool. But I feel good. Otherwise, I feel good. How, how do you feel? Yeah, I feel great. Um, I had a, a, I'm pretty close to, I just had a, a panic attack for the first time um, mm-hmm. in a couple, 
a couple in over a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was interesting. It was a nice throwback, and I've had a lot of anxiety. <laughs> nice throwback. <laughs> TBT. That time. I used to not be able to leave my house. Um, no, it's been great. I mean, I got it because I got Botox, but I've got to tell you, the Botox has worked out just great. I'm loving my forehead. And um, Worth the panic attack? No, I'll never do it again. But I was like, damn. I mean, it was easier to regret it when my forehead was swollen mm-hmm. and there were red dots all over it. And now that it's like just a smooth, perfect surface, I'm, you know, like, fuck. <laughs> what now? Um, no, but uh, – what I was, what I was going to say is it's been an interesting uh, period of time because my anxiety has been so high and um, it was leading up to it. It's always really hard. I took 10 days off and it's hard for me to take time off because I mm-hmm. just immediately start to feel like um, everything is falling apart, you know? Like yeah. even yeah. when I'm in it, – it happens to me and I pretend like it doesn't happen in Italy before I go, but then I get there and I'm like <laughs> depressed. And like, just, I mean, it just happens so fast when I take time off. And so, but anyway, it has really led me to evaluate some things and, and I'm going to be talking about it sooner or later, but I really got into touch with this place of me that's like, you know, that heard the message that a part of me is really scared to do the work I really want to do. And that is to do speaking Mm -hmm. engagements and to really Mm -hmm. get up in front of like audience and be like audience I want to get up in front of audience um, and speak with my mm-hmm. speaking skills. No, I really want to get up on a stage and speak and be like, you know, I'm playing it small still. Like, even though I'm not playing as small as I, you know, historically been playing it small, I still am. I still have these thoughts. Yeah. Like, I'm not good yeah. enough. I can't do that. Who right. would come and, you know, listen to me? And and so anyway, long story short, I have major anxiety, but um, but it's it's like one of those things where it's really good sometimes to have major anxiety because it gives you this chance to to listen, you know, yeah, to what it's sure. saying. And it's saying Something's not working. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's saying a lot. And it's really I'm just kind of listening to it. Um and not, you know, slowing down my coffee intake <laughs> uh funny. yeah anyway um so yeah, yeah. I'm, good. I'm good i'm good i'm really good. good um good good okay so um do we want to introduce isabel fox and duke yeah go ahead okay cool so isabel fox and duke is somebody that came to my attention when i was running a school I was running one of my schools and um, I had been saying stuff, I think I'd been saying, you know, like I discount the food part of things because I, talking about the food part of things is so hard. I don't discount it. I just don't really go there. And and sometimes I'll, you know, I, you remember this, I'm sure. There was that one post where we just kept saying like, eat ice cream. And somebody said, eating ice cream to me makes it worse, right? For For you, and me, you know, my recovery was, you know, pastry and your recovery was ice cream. And first it was pointed out, you know, that that's not recovery for some people that, you know, removing alcohol and saying, well, just eat ice cream is really devastating to them. Um, and so we had this, there was a very long conversation and then somebody introduced Isabel Fox and Duke's work. It came up. Um, so she runs uh, stopfightingfood.com and isabelfoxandduke.com and, and she somebody had posted an article and then 
serendipitously, I was interviewed by Nicole Antoinette, and she was also interviewed by Nicole Antoinette. And so mm-hmm. it just was one of those things where I started to, um, she just kind of started showing up. And when I got into mm-hmm. her work, it was just this, um, this next, I would say for me, finding her work was the next step in, in understanding the things I need to understand. And, you know, we went and did this, we did this series on eating disorders. And we talked, one of the episodes that didn't air was we talked to a woman who was a therapist. Um, and was she a therapist or she was a researcher? Yeah. And, and, and the solution, according to her, for, for eating disorders was CBT. And, mm-hmm. um, and then we had, you know, another guest on, Gina, who talked about the spirituality uh, around food. And then, um, you know, you and I talked about our stuff. And, and for me, pulling together, you know, the, our, how to talk about our relationship with food is one of those things where it's, you know, it, it's, it's not just this one and done. There's body dysmorphia. There's hating our body. There's disassociation from our body. There's forcing ourselves. There's deprivation. There's, um, and always know, there's stuff underneath. Always, always. Oh and- yeah. I mean, there's, it's, it's, the same stuff that drives us to to drink, right? And mm-hmm. so, anyway, so we found Isabel's work, and and she's, um, you know, she's part of the body positive movement, which is something that's very new to me. And she's also a huge proponent of of intuitive eating. And she and I had a phone call a while ago, and just the, you know, she's a strong voice in a field that needs a strong voice to to speak to women in a way that really helps us understand that, um, you know, one approach to getting over all of our stuff with food is to remove um, part of the restriction around the food. And so she's a proponent of intuitive eating her, you know, obviously the name of her website is Stop Fighting Food. But also, um, you know, she's deep in this in this movement of, of loving our bodies as they are. And, and we get into talking about, you know, how to get there which feels like such a foreign concept to some of us because we've spent our entire lives learning to hate our bodies. Um, but yeah, so, so, so yeah, so that is it. We, she's a, you know, she's a blogger. She's a coach. She runs a program. Mm-hmm. Um, she started out by writing for, I can't remember what publication it was. Was it? She's Glamour? on a lot of places. She yeah. writes on HuffPo, yeah. but she's also on Mind Body Green. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so yeah, so she's so we have a great conversation with her just about her story, and we get into um, really understanding what the trick was for her after years of her being, you know, in rehab and um, and having and having you know fought her body and you know and, and lived her life trying to attain something that all of us try and attain, which is this perfect body. You know what really was was the turnaround for her, and and what she does now in in her work to help women find that same turnaround. Do you have anything to add? No, I thought uh, I you made me aware of her, and I I really like what she has to say. I really really do. It resonates a lot with me anyway in my experience um, around you know recovering from my stuff around food. I think. Um, yeah, I just really appreciate it. I appreciate her work a lot. What she's saying out there. Yeah. Yeah, and it is. Again, it's just last week we had Sarah Roberts on who's talking about 
um, her way and her path to mm-hmm. um, to to finding you know a relationship with food that works for her and and it's on the mm-hmm. opposite end of the spectrum of what we're talking about here today and as always I mean Laura and I are just presenting this is just more food for thought so you know for me my path to recovery from I mean from bulimia that I struggled with for half my life and from just and my path that I'm still on to recovering I mean you know today it's just after Christmas I was with my mom for 10 days I Mm -hmm. ate whatever the hell I wanted to eat and Mm -hmm. I don't I'm not you know like I'm not overweight but my jeans feel tight and it's Mm -hmm. like it's some some days it just takes you out you know and this whole like it's for me I feel like forever I'm going to be on this journey of renegotiating Mm -hmm. my relationship with my body and and being Mm -hmm. okay when my jeans are too tight and and stuff like that you know we started out the podcast me talking about freezing my forehead you know for with poison <laughs> you know it's this ongoing thing right. that's that's right that is never done because you know we've been out we've been we've been raised to be at war with our bodies and so I take it anywhere I can get it and this is just another perspective yeah, yeah. Um, in that very long journey I agree I'm with you I'm with you on on all of that I felt I ate however that I've eaten however I want. I kind of always eat however I want. I yeah. try. There are times when I'm more mindful about it because I start to feel bad. Yeah, you know, like like my body starts to feel really bad, and I know it feels better when I eat well and I know how to eat well. But um, you know, like this past week was just we had big, huge desserts every night, and the, I, you know, they were awesome, and we had meals and just eating more more than normal because we were in a house for days on end and it's kind of what you do um, yeah and it's what it's like how you commune right it's uh-huh. like yeah. sharing in like for my family we eat together you know yeah I don't know I don't I think most families do you know yeah. aside, aside from drinking together which yes <laughs> Which you can eliminate food. You you can, right. But, (laughs) but, um, and I know for some people too, that really is like a stab in the heart to hear it's how people commune because they have this really complicated relationship with food. And I, like, I do understand that. And I did too. I used to dread social events, um, and avoid them and all the, talks about this my entire my entire life really was managed by my thoughts around my body and food for 10 years at least probably more like 15 and I get that I get all of it that it's that's not a light thing to say um what's not a light thing to say like it's not it's 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 to say we that that's how people commune is around food is a heavy it's true but yes. it's a heavy statement for a lot of people because it's a little heartbreaking because they feel trapped by food. Yes. You know, no, and, I, and yes. so that they're losing their connection with people if they have to not yeah. eat certain things. Yeah. For um, some people, that's, that's really, like me saying, that would be like somebody saying to me, well, the only way that people really commune is, over, you know, is at a bar over beer, yeah. which I would yeah. disagree with. I mean, with. I, that's exactly what if, you know, I, I, I felt that pain, you know, I felt that pain around around food but more so around alcohol um anyway I just I I I think that yeah I wouldn't I won't even add more than that I think that this um 
we are surprised we didn't really think we wanted to, we, I think we knew we'd talk about body stuff a little bit here and there, but we've been talking about it a lot more because it, the more we talk about it, the more it is asked of us to talk about it. Yeah. Um, and I do want to say, oh, sorry, go ahead. No. And I, and I think we just, we also have a lot to say, you know, that first yeah. episode where we got into eating disorders we both thought we were like, oh, I don't know if I don't want to do this. And then, you know, like two hours later or whatever, it was like, <laughs> I had never really <laughs> dug that up, you know? And I since know. then you've written about it a bunch of times and there's, there's a lot to say for me, I guess, I think the, the alcohol, I dropped that monkey at some point. I just dropped it. Um, uh, and, and for reasons I can't even really figure out, I just dropped it. Maybe the alcohol addiction just got bigger. Uh, I don't know. But I, you know, I, I, I feel like it, with Isabel's message, to me, it sounds like um, freedom in the way I feel free about food now. Like, yes, I went and ate whatever I want. I, I realized, like, there were a couple times this week where I went back and I had, like, seconds of dessert. And I was like, ow. You know, like, I actually just stopped because it, it's like if you can have everything, it's it becomes such a so much less of a big deal to eat whatever. Well, that's For what me. I was gonna say. It's it's interesting. She talks about intuitive eating, and I feel like I've I have not you know aside from doing some cleanses and elimination diets to like for the sake of my health over the last couple of years, I've been really careful to not you know put a lot of stuff around food. And she talks about intuitive eating, and that's what I do for the most part, which is I think about how do I feel right now? How will this make me feel? Um, and and if I want you know three cookies, I will eat three cookies. Or if I want, right. you know, C's candy for dinner, I'll have C's candy for dinner, which I did, yep. you know, and didn't work <laughs> out C's great. candy, oh my God. I don't know if they have that in the East Coast. It's a big thing. I don't, I don't know. But then yeah. it's interesting because then Megan and I have been here and we've been eating, you know, we've been at, uh, we're at a hotel and we've been eating at the diner here and, and not terribly, you know, unhealthy, but not also great. And then last night we sat down to dinner and we both ordered salads and we just couldn't like, it wasn't, there wasn't an, I could have eaten, you know, 10 salads. And I was just thinking about how my body was just screaming at me. It wanted just roughage and clean. And yeah, yeah. And that's like a beautiful thing because if I, I just think the only way I can, and this is why this is an interesting conversation we had last week with Sarah. I mean, I got heated on some parts of it because it is really personal to me. I don't want to be in the place anymore where I think I can't have certain things. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I don't eat meat and I feel good about that. I did have a little fish over Christmas, but I don't like run around and just like claim something that, um, and, and claim I, I, you know, I don't eat gluten. I don't drink dairy. I don't, you know, like I just kind of don't do certain things that don't make me feel great, but also I don't put a lot of heavy stuff around it because yeah. I, because there's nothing worse than, you know, there would have been nothing worse than wanting so badly to eat some fucking chocolate for dinner the same reason way I wanted to eat some salad for dinner last night. Right. And then telling like, myself can't, there was can't, something can't. wrong with that, you know. Yeah. That's um so for that's for me. That's my that's my for story you. and it right. feels free. And this is a lot of what Isabel talks about and um, you know, Anyway, it's something, again, I'm still exploring. I'm still finding my way through. But that has, you know, for me, the stuff that's worked is taking a lot of the pressure off of um, yeah. what it should look like. Yeah, me too. Me too. Okay. All right. Well, well 
That was a lot longer than we thought. Um, Have a good flight. I love you. Love you too. Bye. Bye. I want to call you by your full name always. Hi, Isabel Fox and Duke. You have a really good name. It's a good name. It is a great name. I have to say I get that a lot. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Frequently an early question in podcast interviews that I do is, so where does your name come from? (laughs) So you have to say it again. Yeah. Well, really, it's like super boring. It's like my middle name is my mom's maiden name. Okay. And I guess, and my, you know, and my dad's last name is my last name. And so like, really, I just think, I think I just have baller parents. They both just have like really strong, (laughs) you know, strong, like British, like aristocratic names, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Awesome. Well, thanks Um, for being here. Where are you? You're in San Francisco, right? I'm in San Francisco. I'm a New Yorker uh, my whole life, born and raised, but I moved to San Francisco like exactly this time last year. So, like I you're a Manhattan New Yorker? Coast. Oh, yeah. Born and raised Manhattan. Yeah. I grew up on Union Square. That's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I have a little New Yorker edge, but I'm adapting to the West Coast pretty well. It's very nice out here. How do you like San Francisco? I love it. I mean, San Francisco is the best. It's so. Um, it's just, I mean, it's sort of like the best, I mean, I think of it as like the best of all worlds and, you know, it's like moderate temperate weather, but you have this sort of like <laughs> urban, like artistic thing going on that I wouldn't want to leave. You know, one of the things I would miss about New York is that, although yeah. obviously nothing is New York, but still, uh, San Francisco has got, you know, it's got a lot of just stuff going on and interesting people and it's gorgeous and um, not as anxiety provoking as New York, but also not boring, which is like a delicate balance to strike. And so, yeah, I'm really enjoying it here. The only downside is that it's crushingly expensive, but other than that, yeah. it's, you know, like, I'm like, I'm like, I like, I'm, you know, going to live in a studio apartment for the rest of my life. But, um, <laughs> you know, other than that, it's all good. Awesome. Well, all right. So let's, we'll jump kind of right into it. So, We'd love to have you start off by just talking about um, what your story is, like how you got to be doing what you're doing, but um, but more just taking us through um, what your what your history with with food is um, and I'm yeah. assuming disordered eating. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I mean, my history with food is long, um, and it started when I was very very young, which I which I think is less uncommon than is. I think, unfortunately, is pretty common. I'll say that. Um, Mm -hmm. I was put on my first diet ever when I was three years old. So I also often open my story by telling that because it's it's very relevant to the rest. I mean, it kind of opens up the whole rest of my life. I was very, very, very young. I was I was pre memory when I was put on my first diet. Um, I was like a chubby baby, I guess, or you know, I was like high on the baby BMI scale or whatever. And my pediatrician said to my parents, "You better better watch it. Better watch what she eats," you know. (laughs) And so, um, yeah. And so pretty much, you know, from the time I had memories, I had the belief that my body wasn't okay the way it was, that I should be constantly striving to be thinner. 
And um, as such, I had a very tumultuous relationship with food. You know, I mean, it was constantly a game of, I want that, I shouldn't have it. I want that, I shouldn't have it. And of course, every time I said to myself, I shouldn't have it, it just made me want it more and more and more and more. And I very, very, um, at a very, very young age, I sort of identified with this feeling of my desire for food is completely out of control. I am like a black hole. And if I didn't actively sit on my hands, trying not to eat. I would just eat everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, I mean, again, from pre-memory for as long, as far back as I can remember, that was my relationship with food was this feeling of, I want everything. Mm-hmm. My hunger is insatiable. And yeah. also I, I don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Right. Like always hanging on by a thread, trying not to eat the thing, whatever yeah. the thing was. Um, and you know, every, I mean, there was like a billion diets. There was a billion, um, you know, and, and I use this word diet very loosely. I mean, I really use it to mean, you know, any kind of rule or regulation or guideline or, you know, anything that I thought would help me get a handle on it, you know, and, and keep my, keep me under control. Um, and there were of course several, <laughs> many, many, many over the course of years, but, um, ultimately, you know, I was engaging with pretty classically defined diet binge cycling from that age forward. Meaning, you know, there was, there was this, um, period of, of, okay, I'm going to get it under control this time, this time I'm not going to eat the bread or this time I'm just, I'm going to go, I promise I'm going to do a whole 30 days, know this, know that, or, you know, whatever, again, whatever the guideline was. And then inevitably the day would come where I would just crack, right? Mm -hmm. Like I would just full on crack. And when I cracked, it was like the floodgates opened because of course it was like my, my brain, my body, my lizard brain, my subconscious just wanted everything. Right. And it was just, Mm -hmm. I went into full on, you know, what I refer to as like, fuck it eating basically Mm -hmm. like screw it. Like just bring on the like brown, like I would like go to the deli and I would just buy a million things or Or just, or like, you know, just go through like whatever was just dry crap was in my cabinets because I was literally rummaging through like, try like just inhaling, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, with this whole sort of feeling of like, I've got to get this under tomorrow, tomorrow's day one, tomorrow's day one. I was very, very big on tomorrow's day one. Um, and, and, and day one, that is a trap. Um, (laughs) yes, it is. Tomorrow being day one is the ultimate trap. Um, And so, yeah. And so this was my relationship with food uh, for years, obviously becoming more the oscillations between um, restriction and binging becoming more severe on both sides, right? Like the pendulum swings would get more and more intense as I got older. You know, this is, this is, this shit's progressive, right? Like, um, and until basically at one point, you know, you know, I was my, at one point, basically I, um, got very desperate to, again, get this shit under control. How and old was, were you? I went at this moment that I'm describing, I'm 19. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. at this moment, that I'm, at the sort of moment of desperation, I'm 19 years old. I'm in my freshman year of college mm-hmm. and, you know, I'd been so miserable in high school. I mean, I had no life in high school. My life fully revolved around food. Like I couldn't, you know, Right? Isn't that crazy to think about? Like your entire life revolved around food. I mean, that's how I feel about my 20s. Right. The entire decade. 
oh, I, I like missed high school. Like, do you know what I mean? Like I look back on high school and I just, I'm like, this is so sad. Like that's such a like special, unique time in people's lives. And I just full on missed it because it was just mm-hmm. like, I couldn't even focus on anything other than that. And I was so self-hating and self-loathing about my body yeah. the entire time. Um, and yeah. And so then, you know, finally I'm in my freshman year of college and I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, I, I can't miss college too. You know, I was like, this is it. Like, this is my last chance. I, I basically, in my, the way I really thought about it was like, I have to get thin now. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, like that's still the answer. <laughs> right. Like, right, 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 right. Like, the, I mean, I mean that ultimately the problem is spurred on by the belief that the problem is fatness. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, this whole time this is happening, my belief is that the problem is fatness created by being out of control around food. So, right. um, and so I get to college, I'm in my freshman year of college and I'm like, holy shit. I'm like, you know, at this point, like I totally feel like the chubby friend who's mm-hmm. like hanging out with the cool who's hanging out with the cool girls. Uh, it's like, and I'm just like, I can't be the chubby friend anymore. Like, I'm like, I just need, this is, I need, this is my last chance, right? Like the, my last chance for whatever it was in college, you know, and I think it different yeah. ages, different things, but you know, popularity, I need to get the, whatever. And so, um, and so I basically was so desperate that I turned to cocaine, which, you know, was my like stimulant of choice. But I think, you know, I was also using Adderall. I was using Ritalin. I was using various kinds of stimulants. I basically discovered stimulants. Yeah. yeah. And this is a common story uh, for, binge- I mean, this is a very, very, very common story for um, people struggling with binge eating and, and I think disordered eating in general, obviously, but you know, you know, you mix stimulants with like a, with an obsessive desire to lose weight and you are looking for a problem. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Like you're just looking for trouble. And it took me, I mean, it was maybe six months of, of drug use, lost 40 pounds, ended up in rehab. Yeah. And, and, and that was the beginning of that, like, I consider it like part one of the saga. Like part one of the saga is everything that got me into rehab. Part two of the saga is everything that happened between rehab and actual recovery. Okay. And yeah, if that so makes sense. Can I ask right? you yeah. um, what the relationship with like, did you have men relationships in that time or boy relationships, I guess, if you're in high school. I did. I mean, yeah, I did. I always had, you know, I was like kind of a little bit of a boy crazy girl. I, you know, I, I think one of the reasons I was so obsessed with weight was because I put an enormous amount of emphasis, probably due to cultural pressure and watching too many romantic comedies. I put an enormous (laughs) amount of emphasis of my, uh, of um, my value and self-worth on my ability to get a man, right. Right. Or get, or get the guy to like, that was a huge driving, motivating force for me um, yep. in my particular weight loss story or my particular dieting story um, yeah. was if I'm, you know, basically becoming thin was the way to like get a romance, you know, get, yep. yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. totally like 100%. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's funny because now I'm like, oh my gosh, this whole like cultural obsession with thinness is bullshit. And also P.S., you actually don't need a man to validate your existence. So now I'm like challenging all of it, you know, but, or is that, you know, and into my twenties, I started to like really think about all this bullshit, but like ultimately this, this story, I mean, these two, these two cultural phenomenon of like, I was raised to think I needed a needed to be a certain size and B it's all, you know, it's all, you know, it's all about getting a man to validate your existence. I was struggling with both of those very hardcore from a very young age. on. We all were. I mean, and it's like, 
we all were and our our, our, I mean, I just think of my mom, you know, I don't know what your mom's like, but I mean, a hundred percent of the, that was reinforced and then reinforced by her mom and then reinforced. It was like, right. right, right. It's not even their fault. fault Cause it's just like, it just goes back to like forever. I mean, exactly. Sinness is a relatively new ideal, but the, the concept that like, I need a guy to be safe has been around for Thousands of years. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah. So, so you, okay. So you go through rehab for cocaine, not for food for cocaine. No, 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 no. Oh, no, no, no. For eating, uh, for, for dual diagnosis. So I was there for drug, drug abuse, um, basically assisted, but I was in the eating disorder program. I mean, I was very honest with everyone. The second, I mean, I had this breakdown moment. Basically I had an episode where I overdosed. I ended up in the hospital. That's how I got kicked out of school and ended up in rehab ultimately. And I remember being in the hospital, you know, having a massive stimulant induced, just panic attack. Like I was like seeing stuff. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm like lying in the hospital with like a IV drip of Ativan going into my arm to calm me down. And I'm just hysterically sobbing, shaking. And the doctor's like, you're a drug addict. You need to get help. And I'm like, you don't understand. If I don't use drugs, I will gain weight. And that is the worst thing that could possibly happen to me. You don't understand. You don't understand. And so it was, it was pretty, I was very honest. And the thing is, is like at that point, I actually wanted help. Like I went into rehab, like not because I was forced to, I mean, in some ways, yes, but I went into rehab being like, I want this help. Like if you can teach me how to not binge, if you can teach me. And in my head where I went into it saying, thinking to myself, if you can teach me how to maintain my weight without drugs, that would be a miracle. (laughs) Were you at all afraid that they were going to make you gain weight though? When you went into that, Mm -hmm. like that part of the recovery was gaining weight. I mean, the thing is, is that at, at that point, I was technically, even though I was much thinner than what my natural body size is, you know, I was much thinner than I am today. I was probably at least 30 pounds thinner than I am today. Technically, I was in a normal weight range. Okay. And so, you know, I was on the thin side of the quote unquote normal, thin, normal weight range, according to BMI. Now, this whole BMI thing is a complete load of shit, which is a whole thing that I could go into separately. But what's important and relevant here is that the medical establishment fully buys into BMI. I mean, yeah. that's the sort of that's yeah. the status quo line. Yeah, and I'm so, almost overweight for BMI, which oh, is most people are. I mean, yeah, and I'm not overweight. It's like great. Yeah. Yeah. It's bullshit, right? It's full on bullshit. Most people like know and understand this, but like for a variety of political reasons, the medical establishment party line is that, you know, let's just try and get everyone within this weight range. And then we think we like deluged ourselves into thinking that this will solve all these medical problems that actually it probably will not. But and, not to mention the fact that most of these people cannot be in this weight range, potentially. Right. It's a very, very narrow weight range. I mean, you know, most people walking down the street would call me thin and I'm definitely at the highest end of BMI. I mean, the highest end of what's a quote unquote normal BMI is a thin person's weight, is a very thin person's yeah. weight yeah. relative to the population. Right? right. And so, um, yeah. So anyway, what's interesting about this when I went into rehab, you know, because I was within the quote unquote normal weight BMI, despite the fact that that was not my natural weight, right. My individual unique body's natural weight, despite that, um, because I was still within the guidelines of what you would, of what the doctors would say, okay, you're not about to die. 
you know, and again, this is all so fucked up because the reality of the situation is like, if you're, if you're underweight for your unique individual size, you're still very much at risk. We're still very much unhealthy. Right. But yeah. because the BMI, one of the big problems with BMI is that it operates under the assumption that we are all iPhone sixes and that we are all <laughs> meant to basically be the same size. Right. So mm-hmm. if you are within this narrow range, that is a one size fits all range. The doctors, doctors basically will just be like, okay, you're good. You're despite fine. the fact Right. Despite the fact that that could be a completely wrong range for you as an individual. So anyway, so basically when I got in, you know, I was very honest with my intake people. I just, I self-described basically as a binge eater who had used drugs in order to mean, in order to get down to this quote unquote normal weight range. Um, even though I was still at the, I was definitely at the lower end of the, I mean, I was, I was like cuspy between like what the quote, normal weight range. I was at the lower end of the BMI's definition of normal weight range. Um, but basically I went in there and I said to them, I was like, look, I was like, I'm a, you know, rabid binge eater and I haven't for my whole life. You know, I lost 50, you know, 40, 50 pounds when I was using these drugs, please help me to get off of the, to, be able to maintain this weight without drugs. And the intake people at my rehab, which is one of the, you know, fanciest, you know, high, I mean, it was like, you know, it was like the Olsen twin rehab. I mean, it wasn't that particular one, but it was one of the, yeah. it was like a rich girl rehab, you know, it was like a rich girl yeah. rehab in Arizona. Um, my parents probably spent like so much money on this rehab and they said to me, yep, yep, we can do that. Yep. 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 We can, we can teach you how to maintain your weight without drugs. Basically was the message that I got. Um, that is not what ended up happening, but that was definitely sort of the, you know, the intake person and who knows if it was like, you know, what, what was going on. And the nutritionist there also sort of corroborated this bullshit idea, you know? So I felt, um, I had a lot of, this is just sort of one of the many things that sort of went wrong in treatment. Um, and one of the problems I think with a lot of eating disorder treatment right now is again, you have this sort of conflict wherein, um, clinical therapy and clinical nutrition, clinical treatment of eating disorders is sort of steeped within this bullshit medical establishment BMI thing. And so what was, was it the rehab? Was it what, like CBT? Like what was the rehab? What, what was it? 12 steps? Like what did you, how long were you there? And what did, what were the, what was the treatment? It was like a variety of different things. It was like, pick your, you know, it was like, it, they had equine therapy for Christ's sake. You know, like it was very, um, it was one, again, it was like fancy rich girl rehab where they were doing everything. I mean, it was like CBT, but I was also doing like, you, there was, you could do take art therapy as an elective or like equal. I mean, it was like, it was like, a, um, they were kind of giving you a little bit of everything under the auspices that, um, you know, different strokes for different folks, basically. And, and were there 12 step meetings? Were you going to overeaters anonymous? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And for the drugs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Except I wasn't going to, I mean, I was going to, I was going, and I was also going to OA. I mean, I was going to over, yeah, I was going to Overeaters Anonymous and I was going to, I was going to OA and AA at the time. Um, I was going to just like all the 12 step meetings, um, that there are, I mean, I was going to Al-Anon. I was just, you know, was there anything, yeah. Was there anything good that you picked up there? Oh, I learned a ton of really important stuff that has influenced my work very deeply. I mean, a lot, uh, there are some wonderful things about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Wonderful, wonderful things. Um, In the case of Overeaters Anonymous specifically, there are some 
very big issues that are basically just based on assumptions that we make about food being the same as alcohol when they are actually, in fact, not. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I have, I've talked yeah. to a friend about that. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. So I was, the, there was, I mean, OA, Overeaters Anonymous was basically designed by, you know, it was basically just the, it was started by the wife of an alcoholic yeah. who literally just had the idea one day, oh, I feel about sugar. I feel about food the way my husband feels about alcohol. So, so therefore I'm going to make the assumption right? That, that the absent, basically that it's the, you know, the I can create model, an absent, yeah. that you can model, be right. sober from food by right. specific right. rules. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. But the reality of the situation is that we know is that, um, emotional eating and binge eating, right? She just leapt to this conclusion because we assume as a society that dieting does work. We assume as a society that abstinence is a thing that humans can do around food. We, we completely ignore the fact that food is biologically instinctive, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. We completely ignore the fact that we are animals that actually eat from a biologically instinctive place, you know? And so Um, you know, there's this assumption that that still exists in society for the most part, right? There's this assumption that what we put in our mouths is just a simple matter of willpower. It's just a simple matter of choice, Um, but that's actually not accurate. And so, you know, there was this, because of this assumption that basically dieting does work, right? Um, And, and the, and coupled with the assumption that everyone should be a certain size. Mm -hmm, Um, basically because of that assumption, she was like, Oh, well, I feel the same way about food that my husband feels about. So I'm just going to use this abstinence model. The thing is though, is that when we really look at research around emotional eaters and binge eaters, it's pretty clear that emotional eating and binge eating are, are, are directly correlated and probably caused by dieting. So what you have is a situation where people are trying to fix their compulsive overeating in quotes through doing the thing that probably fucks them up to begin with. Yeah. I do have, I do have to say, I have, I have a really close friend that swears by OA. Um, so I want to make sure that like, it's, you know, it's just kind of like AA works for some didn't work for me. I do know people that I know that if she heard this and it was being to some, you know, it's like to her, it saved her life. So I do want to kind of put that part out there. Um, that's well, you know, people claim dieting saved their life too. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, of very like religious conviction and a lot of, of, um, I mean, in any kind of program, right? I mean, there's religious conviction in any kind of diet. I mean, you think, oh, paleo saved my life too. You know, vegan, you know, this particular diet saved my life. I mean, there's so many people who uh, feel that way, you know, and um, I think for me personally, I'm very much more of the mind of, you know, I think it's, of course, there's something to be said for, you know, everyone needs to do what they need to do and what feels right for them ultimately. And everyone's sort of on their own journey and their own path. But if you want to talk about actual statistics, OA has a very, very low recovery rate. Most people end up leaving or not getting abstinent. And that's just the reality of the situation. It's like dieting. It's like the statistics are such when you actually look at numbers that most people do not um, diet successfully, right? Like 95% of people will lose that ability, will break that abstinence as in the case of dieting or whatnot. Um, yeah, and so I mean, again, yeah. 
to me, it points to, you know, if you look at the rate, at, at the success rate of AA, it's exactly the same. And I think it points to a system that's um, overall broken, right? And yeah. there are things that work. And I think wisdom, you can pull from any number of programs and they're beautiful and good. Um, right. But it's like trying to um, fix all the problems with a hammer. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Another one tool. Yeah. I want to. So I want to get. I want to go to sort of part two and make and make sure we like get, get your story. The, yeah, yeah. Get the story so we can tell. You know, I, I want. There's so many questions that I know we have. I want to like answer them through your story. So so take us to the rehab scene. Yeah, or, or wherever you were going to pick up. Yeah. So basically, you know, rehab was sort of this, you know, again, and I think that, you know, I learned a ton in rehab. Rehab was definitely the beginning of my recovery journey. But one of the reasons I do the work I do is that there were some major flaws in its design. There were some major flaws in the way that I was treated in rehab. And most of it um, stems from the fact that, again, the clinical treatment of eating disorders is ironically steeped within a very incredibly weight discriminating and fat phobic system. Yeah. So, so you have, right, the medical establishment and medical establishment is probably the most fat phobic industry on the planet. I mean, right now we have very, very political reasons, the war on obesity, all these things, right, Mm. which, which to some extent come from a positive place, right? I mean, in the sense of like, I understand and somebody is making, somebody thinks that they're healing people's health, but clearly the way we're going about healing people's health is A, not working and B, the side effects of the way that we're trying to heal people's health is generally speaking, just an increased um, disordered, you know, disordered eating situations amongst various populations, which are largely going undiagnosed or unrecognized, because in a lot of situations, you have disordered eaters who are not thin. Um, And of course, you know, they are engaging, you know, there's so many non-thin women, right, and men, you know, doing incredibly dangerous eating disordered things, and the doctors just pat them on the back, oh, just keep going, keep going, you're almost there, right? And, you know, this is very, very problematic. So, you know, um, this is, uh, you know, to sort of answer the question, you know, there's, there were lots of great things I learned in therapy, obviously. I mean, very much increased self-awareness about, you know, my behaviors and, you know, what's going on. I did all sorts of work around my family. I mean, there's great things. I mean, therapy has a lot to offer, right? But can't ignore the fact that the clinical model is, is inherently steeped in this very fat phobic establishment, this very weight discriminating establishment. So what you have is a bunch of people who are treating disordered eaters and in so doing, reinforcing the very ideas that in many ways influenced their disordered decisions to begin with. Right. You know, and so this is a huge problem. I mean, again, just the fact that somebody said to me, yes, we can help you maintain your weight, you know, at, at, you know, without drugs, without like that shouldn't have even been the, the, that shouldn't even been the goal or the conversation. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. The fact that somebody even said that to me in this rehab facility is, is fucked up, you know? Yeah. I mean, like that's right. Um, so yeah. So that so how is, long were you there? I was in um, it like sort of like severe lockdown inpatient where you don't leave the campus for six weeks, and then I went to a step down facility for several months in California. Um, and so, step- so you were like removed from your environment, like you left New York. You were oh, full on, yeah, full on, yeah. yeah. I was okay. in, I was in, I was on like an isolated campus in Arizona for six weeks, and then I went to Orange County. I mean, you know, I was in like Newport, um, California. 
at a step-down facility, you know, basically a halfway house, like, a, again, like a rich girl halfway house, effectively, um, where I was um, going to meet, you know, the game was you go to two meetings a day, and they had, yeah. you know, Know, different levels. I mean, there were different levels, even in the step-down program. Like when I first got to the step-down program, I was kind of, my schedule was being controlled. I was in therapy in addition to the two meetings a day, but at least I could go outside, right? Like in a, I could get a coffee somewhere if I wanted or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then I slowly progressively stepped down to the, you know, they, they, the, the way it's designed is you progressively um, move on to greater and greater independence. So by the end, I was living in a, um, in the step down facility, but I had like a little part time, like I had a little part time job. And I was just, you know, as long as I went to my meetings and like got checked and I was drug tested and stuff, you know, I was You're like 20 years old or you're still 19. I was, I'm 19. I was 19 through all of this. When I, my 20th birthday, I had just gotten back to New York. I got back to New York right before my 20th birthday. Okay. So I was basically in treatment the my, most of my nine, most of 19. Yeah. Okay. And then, then what happened? So when I left the, again, the sort of, um, the recommendation was basically, you know, go to therapy, get a nutritionist and go to meetings. But OA what was, meetings. OA okay. meetings. Yeah. I mean, okay. both, I mean, both, but like, it was pretty clear. I mean, the reality of the situation was like, I had never had a substance abuse problem before, um, I started yeah, using drugs. You were doing it for a reason. Yeah. Like it was clear that eating disorder was the primary issue. And so, yeah. So I, um, you know, I would like go to AA, but like OA was definitely the focus um, for me at that time. So they said, when I left the treatment facility, they said to me, um, get a therapist, get a nutritionist and go to meetings. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. okay. So I went to, you know, so I was going to meetings every day. And I was seeing um, a therapist and nutritionist, again, very, very lucky. My parents threw as much money as they possibly could at this problem. I was seeing one of the best, you know, eating disorder therapists in the, in, in the state, you know, in New York City. Um, and my therapist and my nutritionist, my nutritionist was a little bit more like, you know, I'll work with you wherever you're at. Like, do you want to be on a meal plan? Do you want to pursue intuitive eating? Like, mm. where are you at? You know, she was very much more like, you know, kind of just going to work with me at whatever level I I wanted to work with. But what was, I think, most um, interesting and confusing was basically my therapist, who is this very, very highly regarded therapist in New York, was telling me the exact opposite of what the people in OA were telling me. And at one point, yeah, and at one point she actually said, Isabel, I I really, I think that, I mean, she didn't, it's hard to say if she actually went so far as to say you should leave OA, but it was very clear that she was like this is problematic you know why like, why yeah because this place because OA is an incredibly fat phobic place I mean that's one of the main one of the big problems with OA and again I love so many things about the big book so many different things about 12-step philosophy are things that I really um they're great things that come out of 12-step philosophy again OA specifically and the idea that we should just you know, translate what, what people do with alcohol over to food is very, can be very problematic. Um, was she um, worried that the focus was still, was so much on being thin? That was definitely one of her, one of her big worries. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
other big worries were the abstinence model, you know, I mean, when I was in OA, I mean, and again, in OA, OA itself can be kind of challenging because within OA, you know, people, depending on what program you're in, there's sort of more rigid programs and less rigid programs. I always went to the less rigid programs because I knew that I came from a disorder. I mean, I, I understood, I, I basically identified as a disordered eater. So there was a part of me that like knew, but I mean, but even still, like, I mean, I actually went into some of the more, at some points I got so like, again, so desperate. I went into some of these more rigid programs, you know, and I like went to see my therapist and I'm like, okay, I'm not going to eat any flour or sugar. And she's just like, this is a problem. Like, this is really a problem. But what was the desperation for you? What was it that you were trying to achieve? Were you looking for freedom? Were you looking for goodness? Weight loss. Well, I wanted freedom, but only if it came in the right body. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted freedom in the right body. And the thing is, is like, that's not actually a choice that we have, right? I mean, that's that's not, that is very unicorn shit. Um, But it's like, I wanted freedom and I wanted to completely conform to the ideal standard of beauty. It's like, no, these two ideas are incompatible, right? I mean, like, if you want to chain yourself to the man, you can try. You still probably won't succeed no matter how hard you tried. Guys, God knows I couldn't do it. No matter, even even when I was full on like, yes, I will give my life over to this goal of thinness, I still couldn't do it, right? I mean, yeah. realistically, long term, yeah. I've been eating my face off quite frequently. But the reality of the situation is like I kept, wa- I kept seeking, and this is why I say phase two of the drama was going through my recovery, pro- you know, going through the process, everything that happened between rehab and true recovery, it took me years before somebody actually explained to me in a way, maybe I had heard it and I just wasn't ready to hear, you know, exactly. Maybe somebody had said it and I just wasn't ready to hear. It took me years before, before it got through to my little brain, right? Before it got through to me that like, oh, these two goals are incompatible. Yeah. Right. Like, like, yeah, no, I'm kind of having a light bulb moment too. Like of the same, because of that, it's like, um, it is because I know about any, so any, any, any restriction thing, like it, it, OA emphasizes, and I don't want to pick on OA at all, but Mm -hmm. it emphasizes, um, it certain models of sobriety and there are no sugar, no flour. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you're focused on that, so long as you're focused on if you're, you know, the goal of sobriety being to stay away from those two things, mm-hmm. your focus is on restricting. Food. Yeah, exactly. It's dieting right. under the guise of mental health. Yeah. Oof. I mean, that's okay. what the abstinence model is. It's a diet. For food. For abstinence, yeah. just to be clear, for food. Right, which right, is food. way different than abstinence from like way, 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 way. Right. Yes. We don't need alcohol. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. We don't way, need way, drugs. Yeah. 100%. Yes. Fully, fully, full on different. Full on, fully different. And this is the problem with food recovery is that people lump it into the category of chemical dependence when it's actually really not. Food is like a natural organic substance that we need to eat to survive. Yeah. So, okay. um, like, you know, like, yeah. Um, but so anyway, so, um, wha- but yeah, effectively the abstinence model around food is basically just a diet, but we're giving it, we're sprucing, we're giving it a different name and we're, we're ca- now, we're not, right. We're calling it, we're calling it recovery, but actually let's be fucking real. It's dieting. That's what it is functionally. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Functionally. That's what it is. So, okay. So you went on and how many years did you go on and like, what was the pivotal moment for you? What was the light bulb moment that, that shifted you actual towards 
towards what you would call your true recovery? Mm, so yeah. So basically to like, I'm going to like cram in the rest of the story really quickly. So it's like in a way could not for the life of me get, I couldn't get more than 30 days in a way, like no matter what. And I tried every, I was like so many different kinds of quote unquote bottom lines. Cause again, in a way you define and your own abstinence in depending on the program you're in, you can define your own abstinence and ever. So a lot of, a lot of people, when they lose their abstinence, again, very similar to dieting. A lot of people when they lose their abstinence are like, okay, well maybe I need to change my meal plan, right? Like maybe that meal plan wasn't the right meal plan. Maybe if I try something new, that'll, then I'll get abstinent. So I went through so many different, you know, definitions of abstinence, like everything from just don't binge to, you know, only eat four ounces of chicken and like a cup of vegetables for me, you know, like all of the, yeah. and everything in between. So I just, the, I, every time I would quote unquote, lose my abstinence, I would just change my meal plan to see if that meal plan was the reason that I couldn't get abstinent. Right. And it was, again, it's the same shit that I used to do with dieting. Right. And what's your <laughs> weight doing during all this time? Like, where's your head and what's your weight doing? I mean, my weight's just like kind of doing whatever it's, I mean, like ups and downs and ups and downs, but certainly on the way up. I mean, and, and to be fair, to be fair, when I got into treatment, I was definitely under my natural set point weight for my body, like the weight that my body actually is comfortable at. So I was probably going to gain weight no matter what. Um, but, but I was, but, but I did it the like up and down, up and down on the way up way, you know, like I always. And was your head like pretty miserable or were you just confused? I mean, every time, every time things were going, every time I was sticking to my plan, right. Every time I was sticking to my abstinence plan, I was like, hail Mary. Thank you, Jesus. You know, (laughs) I found the light. Good. Yeah. 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 Found the light. But then whenever I would lose my abstinence, it would be like soul crushing. Yeah. And again, same shit as dieting, right? I mean, like when the, when the dieting's, when we're doing well on the diet, we're like, hell yeah, I got it this time. Right. And then, you know, it's done. I'm yeah. like, your worth is right. measured in how much willpower you have over the food. Right. right. So I felt super powerful when I was quote unquote abstinent, but when I would lose my abstinence, it was like, I mean, it was, it was, it was, I could make the argument worse in some ways than when I would screw up my diets in the past, because now it had this additional stigma of like, you're fucked up, yeah. right? Like you were sick, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, not that I didn't feel that way when I would, you know, lose my diet, but like it was like it now was an added thing. Right? Yeah, it was like corroborated by like the mental health establishment that I ascribed to at the time, which was OA, right? And so, you know, and 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 so I think that, um, yeah. So you know, during this time, but so t- to your point, right? At somewhere, or I'll I'll just to wrap up the story. At some point along the way, the thing is, when people are in a way, you know, a lot of people are in and out, in and out, in and out, right? Because mm-hmm. you know you fail and then you feel like shit and you're like, maybe there's something else or, you know, whatever. And so in and out, I was in and out for, um, you know, four or five years. I mean, no, I'll say, I'll say, I'll say four years. Like the last OA meeting I went to was probably when I was 23. Right. Um, and so I, but when I, at some point, um, at some point when I had, you know, I had like an abstinence loss moment and I was just like binging my face off and, uh, somebody, I don't even know how this happened. It was another woman in OA. Cause again, lots of people in OA are in this situation and yeah. another woman who is in OA, who's also sort of struggling, recovering, you know, trying to get absent or whatever. I had become friends with her. And at some point she, you know, it was almost like, psst, 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 psst. I found this book. It's called intuitive eating, you know? And, um, <laughs> like, like, <laughs> 
I've got, I've got a secret drug. Right. I found this, but like, it's like you're in jail and someone's like sneaking you cigarettes, you know? It's like, and so, um, I, I, she's like, yeah, and I actually don't even, honestly, I don't even think it was the intuitive eating book. I think it was Janine Roth. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so Janine Roth, I mean, she's an advocate of intuitive eating. She's one of the great sort of teachers of intuitive eating, you know, for yeah. many decades. And, um, and so I read this Janine Roth book. Women, um, I think Food was, and God? No, no, no. Women, Food and God hadn't come out yet. Okay. This oh, was the book wow. she wrote. She wrote this book, I think, in the, in the 70s or 80s. It was okay. her first book. Her first book ever, Janine Roth's first book, was called Breaking Free from Emotional Eating. And it was the book where she first outlines her intuitive eating guidelines, where her, her, her guidelines for whatever, which basically are you know, what we, we now, what most people would consider intuitive eating, right? Like eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full, mind blown, mind, (laughs) eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full, mind fucking blown. Like I had like, do you know what I mean? And so, um, so I read this book and the way Janine Roth writes is just like incredibly emotionally compelling. Like, like this woman gets me, which is one of the reasons I was so committed to OA for so long was because it was the only place I felt I had community. Yeah. Like I was like, oh my God, these people understand me. That's the reason. I mean, really the reason I trusted OA, even over my incredibly distinguished therapist at the time, who was like one of the like highest, like, you know, most like um, esteemed eating disorder professionals of the day, you know? I trusted OA more than her because OA, they were, my people were there. Yeah. My right. people, they understood. They understood, you know. And so when I read this Janine Roth book, and, you know, therapists are all, like, buttoned up. Like, they don't tell you shit about their lives or their personal life. So when I read this Janine Roth book, it was like, oh, shit. It was like, she does get it. Yeah. And she's yeah. telling me. And she's telling me something completely new. Yeah. And so basically I attempted intuitive eating completely freaked out like less than a week into it because like I couldn't ha- I could not handle the quote unquote lack of of, of discipline yeah. yeah like lack of yeah the lack of rules the lack of regulation like it just I mean for me like it was so quickly and like you know again hunger and fullness is like so ambiguous for good reason right but at the time I like couldn't fucking handle it like I just I was like oh my god holy shit I was like I'm just going to binge my face off, you know? And I think a lot of people when they first are introduced to intuitive eating feel that way. It's like, it's so terrifying. Yeah. It's terrifying. It's so terrifying. It's so terrifying. And you just feel so like out of control in quotes. Right. And like, it's just like, so yeah, exactly. It's a really, really overwhelming thing for many, for people, you know, depending on your history and how steeped in this shit you are, it can be really, really overwhelming to just first come across intuitive eating. And it's like, you read the book, whether it's intuitive eating or Gene Roth, and you're like, holy shit, this is the answer. But then like the second you go into practice with it, you're just like, oh my God, this is so scary. You know, it's like, whoa, like I just ate like three brownies. Like this isn't okay. And then you're binging and it's off to, you know, so, um, you know, like it's just, it's very, I think it's so, it's so hard for, you know, committing to pursue intuitive eating is basically like a process of like being comfortable with, with, messiness for a while because the way I usually describe the difference between dieting and intuitive eating is with dieting or with the abstinence model, you're usually the best at it on day one and it gets harder over time, right? Like Mm. day one of my diet or day one of my meal plan is like, hell yeah, I'm on it. I feel like so great. Then it's like, you know, day 36, you're like, shit, I'm hanging on by a thread, you know? (laughs) And so 
But intuitive eating is the exact opposite. Day one is the hardest, right? Like day early. Totally out of control. Mm -hmm. Right. You're like, fuck, what's going on? Yeah. And so, and then, but with intuitive eating, you have also the benefit of over time, it gets easier. Right. And so, and that's the, um, that's what we call sustainability, you know, and that's, that's one of the, you know, I think one of the reasons, you know, into pursuing intuitive eating is so scary and so hard in the beginning, but it is actually long-term gets easier and is sustainable as opposed to dieting abstinence model stuff. So, um, anyway, so I was basically, the point is, is that I bounced, I, I would, I'd, I would attempt intuitive eating. I'd be so emotionally compelled by intuitive eating. I would attempt it. I would completely lose my mind and freak out. And then I'd go back to OA and I'd be like, no, no, no. Clearly I need to be on like the strictest meal plan ever. Or like, some, can we, like, can we talk about though, that like for me, food yeah. has always been a way to like a, a way to control my life. Like there, like that was mm-hmm. a, pr- a primary reason why I loved dieting was because I could yes. control my life through controlling how I ate. How does that, I mean, how do you, I can't imagine just eating intuitively gets rid of that. So what about that part of it for you? Well, well, but that's, you're exactly right. Dieting is the real addiction, which is why it took me so long to actually quote unquote stick to intuitive eating or get comfortable intuitive eating. Because the reality of the situation is that I was addicted to trying to control my food. Like I couldn't handle not controlling my food. Well, you because you think it's controlling your life. You think exactly. it's giving you some semblance of control over your life. Yeah. yeah. And it's order. not even just the food. I mean, I, it's not even just the food. It's like, realistically speaking, it's like, if I control my food, I control my body. And society tells me that if I control my body, I'm then controlling you're worthy. everyone when I control my body, I'm controlling how everyone in the world feels and thinks about me. I am basically mm-hmm. God. It's mm-hmm. so interesting because I was reading my mom, the, the couple from Flipper Flop um, got yep. divorced and um, my mom bought a People magazine. It's been a big deal in our household. And mm-hmm. I read the People and at the end, there's a thing where it talks about where somebody eats in a day, what someone eats in mm-hmm. a day. And I can't mm-hmm. remember who it was, Ugh. but it was like, um, I, the feeling I get when I read something like that, and it's so perfect. It's like for breakfast, this woman has a poached egg and Ezekiel toast with avocado, one quarter of an avocado. And she has mm-hmm. a cup of coffee with skim milk. And then she has lunch, always lunch with a four ounce boiled chicken breast and, mm-hmm. and, and greens. And then mm-hmm. for dessert, you know, nut and fruits. And one mm-hmm. square of chocolate. Whenever I read something like this, my immediate instinct is she's so together. And she had like, oh my God, how does she do it? And there is this like, like it's so hard to break from because I know it's a lie and I right. know it's bullshit and I know it kills people. But at the same well, time, whenever I read that, I get like this sense of, oh God, if only I could do that, right. you know, like imagine. But- But our attitudes, our cultural attitudes towards food are not random. They are a reflection of greater cultural values within the society, right? Like we live in a society that in a post-enlightenment era has become increasingly meritocratic, right? In the sense of like, you control your destiny, right? Like there's no more God. You control your, you are the, you are the controller of your destiny, right? We are obsessed with discipline. We are obsessed with, you know, 
again, historically very puritanical, right? And so there, these values that glamorize thinness and, and food control d- don't come out of nowhere. They come out of the idea that controlling food is really representative. Controlling food and controlling your body is really representative of this, um, of this discipline and of this um, ability to make life go your way. And um, those are values that we uphold very dearly and highly in our society. Um, but again, not always. This is in a very much a post-enlightenment, like in the past few hundred, you know, I yeah. guess. Well, yeah, I mean, it's been increasingly, it's become more and more intense as um, time has gone on in post-enlightenment. Um, and obviously things just get added to this and added to this, right? You know, sort of healthism comes out of this also more recently. But yeah, I mean, yeah. So where, so w- where do you have people like... Okay, so you you have clearly well. I guess let's finish your story. So you you're like five years into recovery. Well, so I know. Well, I first attempted the intuitive eating probably when I was. I mean, I was in college. So I no no no. I was probably like twenty one, twenty two. I I my last OA meeting ever was twenty three. But so this is the point: is that there was a t- several years where I was bouncing back and forth between OA and intuitive eating because mm-hmm. I because because I was like, which one's right? Which yeah. one? Which one? Mm-hmm. Like no and, one, you know, and like because because different, you know, you're getting t- mixed messages from everyone. Basically, all the while but, trying to like figure out what the right thing is so that you can remain in the right body. Eggs. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing is I was just look, I was just like, which diet is it going to be? You know, like, you know, like, and so, but of course, but I didn't think of it in that term. I was like, which recovery for weight loss or which recovery for weight maintenance is it going to be? Because I just assumed, and I didn't even think about it consciously in those terms, because again, I just assumed that, you know, healthy people exist. Right. And it's just like, if you, if you're, if you're eating the right, you know, if you, if you, you know, you're, there was this veil of, there was this understanding that when I was recovered, of course I would be a certain weight and my food would look a certain way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I didn't even consciously think recovery for the right body, but ultimately that was, that was the underlying assumption that was there. When you were recovered, your body would look a certain way and you would eat a certain way and you were just looking for the avenue. And that's such an important point to highlight because is that true? Yes. Is no. that what recovery is? <laughs> no, recovery is really about the way you think and the way you feel about yourself, irrespective of like what body that looks like. And I think that, you know, real, you know, the health when it comes to food can look many different ways. Health can look many in, can appear and can exist in many different body types, but we completely ignore that. We completely just, we, we don't, I mean, it's an assumption that that is not the case. It's an assumption that health, be it mental or physical comes in a certain physical package. Yeah. So um, what was and- it that got you to, what was it that specifically got you to the point where you broke free of the idea that your recovery looked like a certain body and it looked like a certain way of eating. What was the thing that got you to the place where you were? Yeah. Cool so this is sort of 
like so this was like my real like so so I guess my I guess it's like a come to Jesus moment I don't know I had so so many right and then like <laughs> along the way but the one that I always remember so I was bouncing back and forth between different versions of intuitive eating like it was like Janine Roth and then I mean I even went so far as like again I was really on this like weight loss train so I was like intuitive eating there were you know I mean I did like a Christian based intuitive eating for weight loss program I mean like I just did so many different intuitive did so many different meal plans and like just attempts at trying to get abstinence in OA and bouncing back and forth, just try, just again, trying everything. I was like, which one's the answer? Which one's the answer? And, um, I remember basically I was, I was 20, I was 23 and I was living in Connecticut. Um, and I, um, was doing a job that I, you know, I was in a job that wasn't really right for me at the time. And again, living in the suburbs at 23 years old, like I basically had no life outside of just trying to figure out my recovery. And so, um, yeah, like again, um, and so, but I had this, I, I did this really intensive OA thing and I remember it was the first time in four years that I ever, and I was doing this like, you know, meal plan thing where I like, you know, called in my food before and like I had to stick to whatever I had called it, you know, basically saying this is what I'm going to eat. And then I had to stick to the plan. And, um, I remember getting 30 days, like my 30 day chip, in a way, my 30 days of abstinence chip in a way. And it was the first time that I had ever gotten a 30 day chip ever in the three or four year, four years that I had been doing it outside of rehab, outside of my time in rehab where my food was being controlled for me. That was the first time I'd ever gotten 30 days. And I remember just being like, I did it. I got 30 days. And the next day, binge my face off. Just fucking lost it. Just fucking lost it, you know, because it was like, I was just hanging on so tightly, like just by a thread next day, lost it. And it was just like week long in the fetal position, binging my face off. And so then I, um, I basically like, was like, okay, like intuitive eating is the only option left, went back to intuitive eating. This is when I did the sort of like Christian intuitive eating diet, basically. I mean, it was like, I jokingly refer to it as the hunger and fullness diet because it wasn't intuitive eating for recovery. It was intuitive eating for weight loss. And it was like, you eat when you're hungry and you stop when you're full. In this particular program, it was, um, there was a, there was, again, it was a Christian program. So there was a belief that eating outside of the context of hunger or fullness was a sin like punishable by God. And so, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Like cuckoo. Yeah. But anyway, so I, um, went to, uh, so I was doing this, like, so I like committed and I had like a, you know, a gal pal who was like in it with me. She was also in and out of OA and she was also failing in OA. And so then she was like, let's try this thing. Let's try the Christian intuitive eating program because you know, the, the accountability is there, but we're still doing the hunger fullness. We're still listening to our bodies, but we have accountability. Right. It was like, it was like this weird thing. And so I did, um, that and, um, you know, I don't even remember like how long I was like, quote unquote, like six, you know, stuck to that, that like, it wasn't more than, I mean, it wasn't more than a month for sure. It was like a few weeks or something. And, um, but I lost weight pretty rapidly cause I was like basically starving myself. Um, and so then, but at some point, again, some point just binged my face off, um, and just like completely lost it again, like another, like basically like, like three days in the fetal position. And again, these two things that happened so quickly there after each other, I was like, neither of them work, you know? And I was no just hope. like, yeah, I was like, yeah, I went full on. I just can't do this. I cannot control my food. 
I can't do it. I like, I was like, I give up. I, sur- I surrender. You know, it's like when people in AA have these moments where they're like, I surrender. I mean, step one is I can't control my, I can't control alcohol basically. Mm-hmm. Right. It was like, I had this moment where it was like, I just can't control my food. And I just was like, you know what? I give up, you know, like I surrender, like, you know, like yeah. what my food will is what my food will be like I can't I'm not I am not in control of this I can't I can't do it I can't do it and I just you know it was literally like a sigh like fine you know and and what ended up happening was that you know sure I was eating like more Nutella and like I was you know it was like very much you know in the beginning very much drawn to you know foods that I had previously restricted and whatever but I wasn't, I didn't binge after that, really. Like, it really? wasn't like, yeah, it wasn't like, I mean, well, I, <laughs> I actually had a couple slips where I went back to dieting. Because, again, dieting is the core addiction, in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, binged thereafter. But, but this, but this, for that, there was a brief period, right? There was, a, there was like a several months period that I really just was like so surrendered. I was like, I can't, I just, I can't diet. Yeah. I can't, I can't do it, you know? And and, um, you know, and I was, you know, and I, and I, you know, it's not like, oh, my food was perfect, quite the opposite, you know, like I, you know, was, you know, definitely I was eating, you know, a lot more sweets than I, than I do today. Right. Cause it was like, again, it was like that period of just like, yeah, yeah. It's like they call it, in intuitive eating, they call it the legalization phase. Although I'd never actually done it in my previous attempts at intuitive eating. I never actually because went you through were still legalization. Trying to control it through intuitive eating. Exactly. 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 So it was like, I actually went through a legal, it was like, I, it wasn't until then that I actually went through the legalization period where it was like, I was eating more chocolate. I was eating more, you know, Nutella. I was like eating the things I was, I was eating more than, you know, I certainly am, you know, eating these days, but it was just like, there, it wasn't, I mean, there was no, the, the violent binges where you're just like, I hate myself and I'm so sick and I can't move from this bed, right? That violent, reactive, urgent, like get it in right now, right? It, that was just, it, that, that disappears basically when you actually are just fucking relaxed. Well, cause right. it comes yeah. from a place of scarcity. I mean, that's like for my whole life, like you, you start to put such value on the things that you don't believe that you can have or will have again. Right, 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 right. Exactly, exactly. That I call it. It's like there's emotional eating, and then there's what I would call binge eating. But you know, and it to for the for in order to not confuse people, I call it reactive eating. Right? There's a mo- There's there's. I'm sad. I want a cupcake, and there's holy shit. That's the last cupcake I might ever eat. I better eat ten of them. <laughs> and so yeah. you know, there's two different kinds of things, right? And these two things get lumped together like they're the same, but they're actually not, right? And so you know, when I when I was like, okay. I fucking give up. I fucking can't do this anymore. I, I, I wasn't, I was, I was emotional eating, right? Like I was eating outside the context of hunger and fullness. Like it was like, you know, like I was, I was eating, you know, whatever I wanted basically. Um, which again, at that time was more than whatever I want today because like I was in a different place. Like I was, I was really healing some trauma around restriction. That's what the legalization phase is. However, I wasn't doing nearly as much, if any, of the reactive eating that like, holy shit, this might be the last cupcake. The rubber band eating, right. Right, right. exactly. The rubber band eating, right? It's like pull the rubber band back and watch it snap. Um, 
Yeah. So that's what happens. So then, and then again, and so, and I think that it's important to note that, um, so I didn't have any guidance at the time around this. Like this was like full on a come to Jesus moment that I came to on my own. And so there came a point, at, there were, there were um, you know, at certain points along the way, over the, past, over the next like couple of years, there were moments where I would think to myself, you know, oh, I, I wish I was thinner. You know, like, why aren't I thinner? Because again, I, I didn't have, I didn't know all the research that I do now about weight set point theory and all these things that I, I want to get to at some point in this conversation. But I didn't know that. So there was this point of me that was like, you know what, I can't diet. I fully get it. It's just not fucking worth it. But like, there was a little part in my head that was like, but you really should be thinner. And so occasionally I, I would like fall back into dieting, you know, like I would, yeah. I would, I would say, maybe I'll go on Weight Watchers. Like that seems like a sensible diet or like whatever. And of course it wouldn't work. And, and very quickly into it, I'd be like, oh yeah, can't do it. I forgot. But now I remember I can't fucking do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, and then, you know, I'd go back to like my surrendered place where it's like, my food is not, my food, you know, isn't perfect, but it's not hell. Yeah. And you know, like, like, yeah. It's such a process. process. But that's so important. That is so important to understand because that's exactly where I'm at, which is my food isn't perfect, but I'm not in hell over it. Right. Right. I think I'm okay. I'm okay. Right. And it's only really, when you realize that it's only, that it is a societal construction that your food should be perfect, right? It's like when you get that, right? Like it's like, let it, you know, it's, I, I would take, I take imperfect over hell any day. Who the fuck said my food's supposed to be perfect? I mean, I am an animal after all. Yeah. Can I ask you, so I want to know, like, how, how do you feel about your body today? Like, how, how do you, how do you feel about your weight today? How do you feel about your body today? Like, like, do you have days where I, cause I know that you love your body and I know that you're, that you're into the body pause movement. I, I'm just curious mm-hmm. if you ever have days where you curse how your jeans feel or if you hate how <laughs> I just wrote about this, like how your knees look or like, yeah. you know, that your triceps yeah. are not well, muscular. So <laughs> Stuff like that's that. Such a, it's such a great question. And I think that, you know, to answer it, I want to just say really quickly, there's, there's sort of two things that are happening when you are really pursuing body positive recovery. And I say there's, there's, um, Step one, which is sort of kind of the most important step for food recovery, which is accepting your body, um, which is different than loving and liking your body, right? Or like liking the way it looks, right? Or being like, oh, you look cute, right? Accepting your body means you accept it the way you accept that the sky is fucking blue. Like, I don't need to like that the sky is blue to just accept that it's that's the way it is. Yeah. Right. And so body acceptance, size acceptance is different than, and I perceive myself to be beautiful, right? Perception of perceiving myself as beautiful is different than accepting. Um, so what I will say is, you know, step one, I think acceptance is really, I think what is, what really is, is really the step one. And it certainly does a huge amount of good for our relationship with food because acceptance is what allows us to stop dieting and stop basically fucking with our food and doing all of these, you know, dysfunctional things. 
that keep us in hell. And so acceptance is hugely important. And acceptance generally is a little bit easier um, or it can happen more quickly than changing your perceptions to and I'm beautiful because changing your perceptions to and I'm beautiful is a, is a longer process. It's ha- I mean, it's very much possible, but it's a longer process. It takes longer time. It takes, it's a different skill set of work to change your perception versus accepting the situation for what it is. And so another way I think about it is like acceptance is there's eight ounces of water in the glass. That's a fact. I accept that there's eight ounces of water in the glass. And that's like step one is just accepting that there's eight ounces of water in the glass. Step two is, do I now want to do the work to start to see that as half full rather than half empty? And they're kind of like two different steps, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, so acceptance, I would say I have down pretty, 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 pretty good. I mean, like it's very, I mean, I'm very clear that dieting doesn't work. Like there's no part of me that thinks that that's a good idea at this point. Like acceptance is there. Like acceptance is fully there for the most part all the time for me, because it's just like at this point in my life, it's just like dieting is just not a fucking option. Like I'm just so convicted and clear in that. And I think that it takes a while for people to really get there. I mean, again, I slipped back into dieting a couple times. Like it wasn't really until I started learning about weight set point theory and some of the scientific basis for all of this stuff that I really was like, oh yeah, holy shit. Dieting is not an option. It doesn't fucking work. Um, and so I'm pretty convicted in that. So I have a very strong level of acceptance. That's, that's pretty unwavering. Um, I would say I've also simultaneously done a ton of work to try and see my body as, or the glass is half full, right. And try and see my body in a positive light. That being said, what about love? I mean, that, that as well, like I want to include that word in this. Well, love is an interesting word because it means different things. I mean, for me, when it comes to body positivity, you know, people use the word love as a way of meaning. I perceive my body as beautiful, but I actually really like a a different definition of love, which is I love my body the way I love a little child, right? Like I love my body the way I love my... Yeah. yeah. And that also, I feel like I've cultivated quite a bit over the past few years. I mean, I've developed quite a lot of body love in the sense of like, I really, I'm really convicted in caring for myself mm-hmm. over and above societal expectations. Like my self-love comes before my self, like, you know, my need to please other people. Right. And it's like, that's really where you're like switching from self-hatred to self-love is like the moment that you decide like my body is fundamentally good, fundamentally good and worthy of care. You know, Mm -hmm. and like, she's the human that keeps me breathing. Like she keeps me on this planet. Like she woke me up today you know, and didn't let me die. Like she is like the, she's really the only thing that I have. Like she's the only thing that I will have until the day I die definitively. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, certainly I've done a lot of work to pursue body love, the, the switching your perception to beautiful, right. Which is what a lot of people often mean when they say body love or what a lot of people often think when they say body love is this idea of like, now I think my body is sexier. Now I think my my body is beautiful or now I think my body is whatever val- whatever attributes you used to associate with thinness right I mean that's really what it is it's like the positive attributes that you used to associate with thinness whether it be you know sexy or beautiful or attractive or whatever you know seeing those things in yourself in a different body shape or size in a diverse body shape or size that's like a whole other skill set that I think is is incredibly important to pursue but basically I'm just making a point that there's lots of different ways that this concept can manifest um 
as far as perception, there's lots of great work. So I, there's so many things to do with perception shifting and people, you know, there's lots of, I think that my, my perception of myself has changed substantively. Like if I were, the, you know, when I was 17 at the size I am now, I definitely would have like hated myself and thought that I needed to lose 20 pounds to be sexy. And like, I certainly don't failed. feel, I mean, Right. And I feel pretty fucking sexy right now. Like I can be naked in front of anyone. No problem. Like I can be naked in front of anyone. No problem. And I remember the first time I ever let a guy look at me naked in the daylight. You know, like I remember that point in my recovery where I let that happen. Uh, right? Because prior to that, it was like t-shirts during sex, you know, like that was my life. Oh, oh, yeah. Um, you know, and so, you know, and so this is, you know, I've done quite a bit of work. Um, what I will say as, you know, to sort of just create a little bit of like, okay, so like, what's the like slap of reality here? The slap of reality is that I will probably die living in a fat phobic culture, living in a world where I am being judged on the basis of my body. And that is a form of oppression that I will sadly have to deal with until I it probably until my death. Can I ask you yeah. about that though? Because there, <laughs> yeah. there, I feel like it's also changing and, and like, this is something that I've just recently started to become aware of because of uh, the girl that works for me and for us on this podcast um, is this is her thing. Um, this is her cause, but the, I've just recently like found Ashley Graham and Bo- mm-hmm. Body Posi Panda and like mm-hmm. the whole body positive movement. And it's shocking at first. It like to mm-hmm. me, it was shocking at first to see women uh, like Ashley Graham has blown my fucking mind. Um, yeah. And for those of you that yeah. don't know, she's she's not a plus size model. She's she's a model who is got a body with uh, how do I how do you even say it? What's the politically correct way to say it? She's got a normal woman's body. Well, she's got thighs and an ass and a stomach. Right. Although in the modeling world, her body is very atypical, right? So yes. I mean, she doesn't like the term plus, plus size. size. That's right. Just, right. But that's a that's actually a, a very controversial point of view that she takes. A lot of body activists are like, "What the hell is wrong with the term plus size?" You know, um, like you are bigger than your peers. Like, let's are you ashamed of it? I mean, there's so it's a whole know, debate about whether about or not. Yeah, yeah. Every, right. Exactly. There's a whole debate about it. But I mean, the point is, is like you know, Ashley Graham is like a size. I mean, she's a size fourteen. That's atypical for fashion models. Yeah. And she's beautiful. And not only that, it's, it, I know she is. And not only that, it's, by the way, she does have, she benefits from so much beauty privilege. I mean, her body is like exactly proportioned the way society wants it to be proportioned. There's a Barbie of her face. Right. Yeah. She's exactly. She's a plus size Barbie. (laughs) Um, but there, but I guess, yeah. And also her face is, I mean, she's a knockout. She has, she does have beauty privilege. Her face is is very pretty. Um, but it also is just this thing where I was shocked at first. The more I look, the less I'm shocked. And then the more I look at body posi panda, the less I'm shocked. And my Mm -hmm. friend Amanda, the other day, she's, um, she's, uh, was an actress and was anorexic. And now she's in the body pause movement and talks about her struggles with eating. And she posted a picture of her, um, like just naked, uh, not naked, but like her stomach. And it was just like this one woman posted in the comment thread. Cause I reposted it. This one woman posted in my comment thread. It's, I'm shocked to see 
a woman who looks like me was <laughs> putting her body on social yeah. media. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is, yeah. it's shocking. But I, and at first, like for me, I was a fattest and I'm just going to say that I was, you know, I went through a long period. I've, I've struggled with eating disorders for a really long time. And when mm-hmm. I was at my smallest, I remember I was with a boyfriend in LA and we were driving and I was telling him, like, I just had a contempt for fat people. And I'm not like, I don't anymore, but I did. I, you know, because I was terrified of it in myself and I thought it was the grossest thing I could be having had been overweight, you know, often on my entire life. And I had a contempt for people who were overweight is just seeing them as, well, they're not trying hard enough and, and they're not healthy. And we have this idea, this projection that we put Mm -hmm. on people that when they, when they have weight on their body above a certain, you know, societal accepted norm, right. That, that they are, that they're irresponsible and, um, and it's so easily, it's easy to spot so much easier to spot the drug addiction or alcohol addiction or any of this other shit that we do to kill ourselves. Um, so right. I just, I mean, amazing I do what feel kind like of judgments we I, make right? on the basis of appearance. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. But do you feel like it's, I mean, I've changed. I've completely mm-hmm. changed and I'm changing yep. and changing with my own body yeah. and also changing in the way I perceive other people. You know, like I catch myself saying yeah. she shouldn't be wearing that. Right. Or yeah. like, uh, oh my God, how dare she? Or, you know, and it's more like, I feel like I'm changing, we're changing, but do you feel like it's changing? And if so, how do you feel? Like it's, I mean, oh, you said yeah. you die I mean, in a society that, yeah. sorry. Oh yeah, I will. I mean, I probably will die in a society that is weight discriminating. I mean, we have a long fucking way to go. I mean, yeah. long, 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 long. I mean, there's no doubt that the revolution is happening, right? I mean, the body positive movement is incredible, but like most people on the planet have never even heard the term, let alone yeah, right. are ready to like actually challenge their bias, let alone, I mean, and if you think about bias, I mean, if you think about gender bias, racial bias, I mean, like how long do these things, these things don't even necessarily just go away because you're aware of them and doing the work. I mean, like you could be working on your own fat phobic bias for the rest of your life. Yeah. I mean, I find myself occasionally making judgments of people on the basis of size and I have to be like, whoa, whoa, that's your bias, babe. Like that, you know, I mean, that's the reality of bias is that bias is, it is a process to overcome that even when you're willing to do the work, even when you are, you know, committed to doing the work, which PS at this point in history, most people are not. Yeah. Yeah. All it takes is having a a little girl too, to real, like I would have said the same thing, Hall, like, uh, because I have changed, my perception has changed so much that I would think that we've you know, we're in a different place, but to have a seven-year-old girl and she's already starting to talk about, um, body stuff because she hears it, you know, and, and it's like, right. Not, uh, shocking because, but it's also, it's just, we're also at the age where I think, you know, it, it, it's very alive and well in the younger, in the younger, you know, kids and the teens and twenties and stuff. And also it's like a very specific type of person in their twenties and thirties who even has access to this information, you know? Um, and so, you know, it's a very, you know, it's, it's tied into all of these other sort of like social groupings and blah, blah. But, um, you know, to your point, again, the revolution is absolutely happening. And I think what's really amazing and what's really hopeful 
you know, and what I try to sort of convey with this whole, you can actually learn to see the glass is half full is that, you know, the work that you do as an individual matters, right? Like you can yes. actually change your own life. Um, however, right. Like I don't see myself as, as, as ugly or unattractive or unsexy the way I did 10 years ago. However, I am also aware that the majority of our society is still pretty weight discriminating and fat phobic. And it is a long fucking haul ahead of us. I don't give a shit about those people, quite frankly. Like I'm at the point where I'm like, I just fucking disagree with you. You're an ignorant bigot. However, <laughs> um, I, right. Like I don't let those people affect me. Like my body image is like my body image. And like, I hang out with like body people who love and accept me the way I am. And I, you know, focus myself around body positive images and body positive media to the bet, to my best ability, which is not always easy, but to my best ability. And so, you know, that's all well and good. And it's changed my life and it's changed my relationship with food. And like, I have a life today because in large part, because of the body positive movement, that being said, we have so much work to do. We have so yeah. much to do. Right. And the vast majority of people on this planet are not woke to this issue. Hey, what did you, um, do you, have you watched this is us? No, but I've, I'm very, I'm familiar with the, the storyline uh, with, 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 story with the fat girl plot line. Yeah. 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 yeah uh, I'm just was curious. That's what I was thinking too. What you thought. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Right. I mean, I, I, so, so I've, I've heard, again, I haven't seen it, so I don't want to speak with too much authority on the topic. I probably should see it, but to be quite frank, um, one of the reasons I haven't watched it is because the stuff that I've read hasn't necessarily been all that positive. I mean, it seems to me that the, this is a story about a plus size woman where we're basically just watching her, um, from what I hear, and again, I could be wrong, but it seems that the storyline, um, is not necessarily portraying her positively, but is portraying her as constantly trying to lose weight. That's all it is. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that's what it is. I don't think it's portrayed positively either. I think right, it's actually right. really, um, damaging, damaging. Um, but I was curious what you thought about it. I mean, aside yeah. from that, it's a beautiful story and there are so right. many other pieces that play into it. So I, uh, yeah. So yeah. watch it. And then we'll, when we have you on right. again, we'll, we'll talk about well, it. I think, I think the one thing that's good is it like shows her getting on an airplane and it gives like, it does give this empathy. the reality. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. It shows people that weight discrimination is happening. Oh yeah. But what we really need, you know, is, is I think that people ultimately, no, I mean, at least fat people, some thin people are just completely out to lunch, but at least fat people, people who are actually living in plus size bodies, like they don't need to watch that show to know what's going on. Like they experience it every day. Yeah. Right. And so, but the, but the issue is if we're really going to be, you know, of service and of help, it's not just about pointing this out. It's actually about creating new characters on the, uh, you know, on television whose lives don't revolve around weight loss. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Let's, create a let's create a fat character on television. Who's a fat who's just character living on life. television. Yeah. Who's like <laughs> yeah. happy and like getting laid and like doing I, all of the things that there are plenty of like really, um, you know, amazing, independent, strong, you know, fat women out there who are just living their lives. Like, you know, let's make a, let's make a television show about, you know, I mean, I was going to say again, Ashley Graham has lots of privilege. I don't necessarily want to like tout her as like the ultimate in like in, in, uh, you no, can do regular looking but people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like, let's just have body diversity on television without, you know, without it being a thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 Okay. So we have just a few more minutes left. Tokenism. Um, you know, it's tokenism. I mean, that's basically what it, what's what it tokenism? is. Yeah. So tokenism is like, you know, it's like the token black oh, character. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, yeah she's, I mean, it's funny that Laura and I both thought of one woman on TV who's fat. Um, okay, so I do, we have just a few more minutes left, and I think, Laura, we ask her, like, the question, um, but also yeah. um, I do definitely want, after that, I definitely want you to talk about um, some of your favorite resources and books um, uh, and uh, just so that, our, like, for people to get started. And then we'll definitely have you on again so we can talk further because I wanted like some of the things I really wanted to know is what you think about like um like I don't I try and not drink dairy and that's because it fucks with me it makes me sick oh, yeah. and so oh, yeah. I'm curious about stuff like that oh, um, yeah we should talk about that okay, we should well, talk about what is what does health mean outside of the context of dieting for weight loss <laughs> yeah, like what exactly. a concept exactly. what a concept you know, like, wait, not eat dairy without it being about weight loss, right? Like, I mean, mind blown, mind fucking huh. blown, like brains on the wall. Or not eating you know? sugar, not eating whatever. Or whatever. Because feel good. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Mind blown. I mean, this is what health, this is what health at every size is about. So health at every size is a, is a, is, I don't know if it's appropriate to say part of body, of the body positive movement, but it is a, it is a movement in health, in the health industry, right? Within the context of health, you know, the, the leaders of health at every size are health researchers who are basically, you know, their views are very much in alignment with body positivity, all what I'll say. And basically what they're saying is that it is actually quite unhealthy to focus on weight loss as a goal. What is actually healthful is to focus on health for health's sake. And that dieting for the purpose of trying to forcibly manipulate our size is actually quite unhealthful and is creating a lot of health problems in this country and and around the world. And so, you know, health at every size is basically saying, what if we actually pursued health for health's sake? What would that actually look like and mean, right? Like you can actually choose to eat relatively healthful foods at all different sizes. People who eat healthful foods are going to arrive at different sizes, hence my whole concept around, you know, what is your natural weight? Your natural weight might not be BMI 23 guys, you know? And so, you know, um, yeah. So this is, this is a whole other branch of the conversation that we didn't even really get into today, but I'd be, I mean, I talk about this all the time. I'd be happy to chat about it with you anytime. Cool. So what do you, this is a question we ask everybody, or at least most people when we remember to do it, it's our favorite question. So, um, what do you think your job is? Um, I mean, so my tagline is I help women stop feeling crazy around food, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's my tagline. I mean, that's but what do you think you're here for? Like, what do you think your job is on the, on the planet in this life <laughs> on, on this planet? Like in this life, mm-hmm. yes. I think, I think, you know, and I don't know what my job will be in 20 years, but certainly it seems that for the past five years and probably for the foreseeable future, my job is to help women, is to help liberate women from the chains of what they think they are supposed to be rather than who they actually are and want to be. Love it. Fuck yeah. That's so good. That's so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Um and book recs, so, yeah. like, what do you recommend? Like, how do people get started? We know that we're going to direct them to your blog. Um, and you run a coaching Thank program, you. a group coaching program, and you also do Just, one-on-one coaching. You coached Ricky yeah. Lake, by the way. 
No, I did not coach her. She's just a fan. Cause I'm, you know, cause I started as a, you know, I started as a writer. I mean, I was writing for women's health. Ma- I mean, that's how my business got started was that I was writing for health blogs and I was like, Hey, you're all full of shit. You know, no, I'm not really, but you know, I was, I was that voice, you know, very few people were really talking about intuitive eating. Certainly no one was, you know, very few people were talking about size acceptance. And this was five years ago. I mean, the amount of progress we've made in five years is astounding. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, so that was sort of, I I was like that chick who was writing about that thing in, you know, on these like various health blogs. Um, and so, yeah. And so, you know, Ricky, like, you know, had heard my, she actually, I think she saw me on, on a um, news show. She saw me on HuffPo live one day and she tweeted at me and then we kind of, and we became friends, which I hear is like a common way that celebrities like make friends. I don't know. No, I mean, we're, we're, you know, friendly and she's supportive of my work and, and I, and I, um, you know, just really, really appreciate her. Ricky Lake is one of the most progressive people on the planet, by the way. I mean, she has done so much for women. It's amazing. And she, you know, right. She basically, you know, at some point was like, okay, goodbye to my talk show host life. And she started a documentary film company, um, with her partner, whose um, name is Abby, I forget her last name, which is horrible, but, um, she made an incredible documentary about, um, natural childbirth and some of the issues that we're facing around how childbirth is handled in the medical establishment and how fucked up it is. So (laughs) she made, she's in the process of creating a documentary about medical cannabis, um, and sort of, um, how medical cannabis can be really incredibly life-saving with very, um, with much less harm than a lot of other, um, particularly cancer treatments and things like that. I mean, so many cancer treatments out there are very in and of themselves, incredibly harmful and toxic. And so she's done a lot of, um, you know, she made in the process, I think of developing this, um, documentary about medical cannabis, which is incredibly inspiring. I mean, she's very much, um, she's an incredibly, incredibly progressive celebrity. And so, you know, she, uh, you know, it, it, like I was very, very appreciative of her, um, support. But yeah, I think people don't necessarily realize that about Ricky Lake. Ricky Lake is, is sort of what is very much out to correct a lot of very hard problems that we have with the medical establishment. And so, you know, we're very, we're very aligned in that way. Awesome. Yeah. You wouldn't think that that's, it's good to know. Mm -hmm. I just, she, the day my dad came out to me gay, she had a talk show host about father's who married straight women and who were gay. Oh, so God. that's what I think of when I think of Ricky Lake. Um, yeah. Them. Oh, and her partner's name is Abby Epstein. I just Googled that just so that I'm citing her correctly. So book recommendations yeah. that you have. Um, I know you gave me one, but I'd love to hear like a couple of uh, top book picks that you would recommend to people listening. Well, Yeah. Well, so, you know, again, there's sort of levels to this work, right? It sort of like depends on where you're at. If you have been dieting. Yeah, the way in. I would say I would say intuitive eating is is step one. Like that's usually how I introduce the work. You should know going into this that intuitive eating, it's like you're not gonna like read the book and be fixed. Like it's a process and there's a lot more to learn post understanding the guidelines of intuitive eating and what that even means to listen to your body. I mean, there's an enormous amount of just emotional work to dismantle ourselves from diet like thinking that in my opinion is the real work and is really what my work, like my coaching work really focuses on. Um, but intuitive eating is undoubtedly important to understand, particularly for those women who have just been dieting their whole lives. And for them, it's like, what do you mean? Don't diet. 
Like, there's no such, like, what does that even mean? Like, what does it even, like, if I'm not dieting, I'm just binging. I mean, that's how most people perceive their relationship with food is that there's no such thing as diet. Either under control or it's not. Right, exactly. And so, you know, intuitive eating is sort of the big understanding, just the biological principles of like what, how your body works and like how we are actually designed to eat food, like the way animals eat food, like when you're hungry, when you're full, right? Those intuitive eating is a really, really great introduction to basically what it means to not diet um, and actually be sort of nourishing your body, quote unquote, appropriately, although I kind of hate that term, but it it basically means like, what what does it mean? What is, it's one of the many answers to this question, what does health mean outside of the context of not diet, you know, in the context of not dieting, like what the fuck does that mean? So intuitive eating. So is the book actually called intuitive eating? Is there a book? It is. Okay. Okay. There's several books about it, but yeah, intuitive eating is the one that at this point I recommend. Um, It's not perfect like there's certain things again about the way it's written that I wish weren't written that way it's written by two nutritionists and it can be a little bit occasionally moralistic and again that's why it's so important you got to do the emotional work you got to do the body positivity stuff. I mean again I cannot stress intuitive eating is not the answer it's just step one right and so but it's an important step one and it's there for a reason so if you're completely like if you've never not dieted it's a good place to start start. Um, beyond intuitive eating, um, beyond, and, and be weary of intuitive eating for weight loss scams, because that's definitely a thing that's happening on the internet is like people selling effectively the hunger and fullness diet. Like, um, but anyway, so intuitive eating, the intuitive eating book is for my, is in my opinion, the, you know, the least moralistic, the least like sort of, um, I, I like the way it's written better than some of its contemporary, you know, but better than some of the things that it's um, often compared to. But yeah, it again, it's not the answer in and of itself. It's just step one. Like it really is just that the answer to the question, what does it even mean to not diet? Um, and then beyond that, you know, you're really having a conversation around dismantling diet mentality, diet mentality thinking, right? The, the thoughts and beliefs that are really the engine driving this whole thing, right? The belief that there's a right way to eat and a wrong way to eat, the belief that there's a right way to have a body and a wrong way to have a body. I mean, this is the real engine of the problem. And I would say, if you're really interested in doing that work, go to my, go to stopfightingfood.com and download my video training series and, you know, read my blog. I mean, that's where my work, that's where my work really, the focus of my work really is. Um, and then other books that I think are really, really important that I recommend to my clients are um, Health at Every Size, which I mentioned, which again, talks about what does health mean in the context of size inclusivity and, um, you know, really challenging medical establishment on BMI and things like that. Um, like, what does it mean to pursue health without outside of the diet model, you know, outside of the diet model. Um, and so that's a great, 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 great classic book, very research dense, you know, for people who are unconvinced of the science, that's a good book to read. I mean, it's Mm. pretty, it's science heavy. So for people who like that, which a lot of dieters do, that's a great book to read. 
Awesome. It's um, well, we've got to go. Yeah. Um, uh, we're, we have, we're running over for another appointment we have to go to, but, um, thank you so much. We'll have to have you on again because we didn't even touch half of the questions that we had for you, but thank you yeah. so oh. much for being on and telling us your story and sharing all of this amazing wisdom. We've had a lot of episodes on eating disorders and disordered eating and food and diet. And this has been just, I mean, I know that our, our people, um, I know most of our people are deeply affected by Need this. It. Yeah. Yeah. Yay. Well, I'm so glad. And yeah, and I hope to, you know, if anyone wants to connect with me, isabelfoxenduke.com or stopfightingfood.com is, is a really, really great place to get started with the work because that's that's where the there's like the little video training series, which is the big introduction to everything is there. So either of those places is, is great. And I, I definitely recommend the video training series to start as an intro. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. And we'll also put have that a in great the intro. Holiday. Um, but cool. thank you so much. And yeah, have a wonderful holiday. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Bye, guys. Bye. Infinitely so.